0: What God is talking to the creators about in the second commandment is intentionality. What are your intentions in creating? The second commandment says that we are not to make any images. So what does that mean for the creative process? In lesson five of Christ and Culture, we'll explore what God has to say about artistic intentions, the pitfalls of creative idolatry, and how, as Paul instructs us in Colossians 2 and 3, we are to stay rooted in Christ. And now, Here's Ike. So here's where we are. Uh, here's where we are right now. We're at the our, this this rooted in Christ idea, which is what we we ended up with at the end of last week. Uh, we've been studying culture. Here's culture. Culture is this you know, this phrase from Rookmacher that we've used each week. Uh, life is one. So culture is the expression of all of these intersecting, interlocking mechanisms. Uh, uh, mechanisms and. Um, Uh, Institutions and uh, both man-made institutions and God-given institutions, like, for instance, the family is an institution, but it's a God-given institution. But it's the interlocking of families and schools and regions and, uh, you know, beliefs and and not the bank. I mean, geographic regions, it's not. But every, I mean, corporations have cultures, cities have cultures, towns have cultures, all these different places. have have cultures. Culture is the expressions, the outward manifestations of our belief structures. What what we believe uh, will create values. What we value is what will set priorities as to what we focus on and what we make the decisions to do as family. So for instance, a Saturday night, you have a culture in your family that reflects values about what's important and what's not important, you know. Um, when I was growing up, I mean, it won't, won't surprise you that Harry Reader's family uh, created a culture that valued Saturday night because the next morning was Sunday morning, right? And they placed a premium on Sunday worship. So we were, uh, we were allowed to hang out with friends on Friday nights and Saturdays. And we could spend the night. We could do stuff. But somewhere around 2 or 3 o'clock on Saturday, we were, we were supposed to be home. That was that was just the rule, and the rule wasn't a rule to say how terrible you are if you break this rule. The rule was an expression of a family belief that Saturday afternoons and evenings was a time to be together as family to prepare for worship on Sunday morning, and so we would go, and we didn't just sit around. We don't just sat around and you know meditated on you know Hebrew scriptures or anything like that. I mean, we'd go to somewhere around two or three. We'd go out to the field. I'd do, you know, my football kicking because I couldn't practice a lot during the week because soccer and football is the same season in North Carolina. And then Abigail would be running around the track and my mom would be doing walk her walk. And dad would be holding the stopwatch and holding the football and keeping everything corralled at the same time, you know. And then we'd, you know, we'd do that. And then we'd go to South 21 Drive-In and get Cheeseburgers and fries, and the car would smell amazing for a week afterwards. And then we'd go over to the mall and walk around. And Dad and I would end up at the little mall bookshop, and I would end up in the back corner with a fantasy or sci-fi novel, and Dad would end up in the Civil War section. And Mom and Jennifer would run out as fast. Our mom and Abby would run out of the bookstore as fast as they could. Uh, and, and go, you know, clothes shopping or go look at, Abigail would go look at new running shoes and, you know, whatever it was. We just got, you know, we just hung out. And then we'd be home by around 8 or 9 o'clock and, you know, and then that was it. We were in for the night. And it was, you know, it was just like family. And that was a part of our family culture, which is an expression of our family belief system. Um, each one of us is in the process of creating culture. So what we looked at last week was what is a paradigm or a framework for, the way that we create as creators. Now, the texts that we looked at, especially on our horizontal, or oh, pardon me, on our vertical axis here, the, the two Exodus texts. All right, make sure. Can you guys see that? Can you see that? Does that help you guys see that without glare over there a little bit? The text we looked at, and you guys all have this. Mary Claire sent this whole uh, PowerPoint out, so you should be able to see it no problems, right? Was these two texts our relationship with God and our and our personal uh, expressions of our skills and talents. Okay, and Exodus 20, verse four is the second commandment, which says thou shalt not create any images of heaven above, of earth below, of uh, of the um, of the sea or the earth beneath and the sea below. And, and, you know, all those things are out of the question in order to create things unto work to worship them. So it's not that we can't create things, it's that we can't create things that we'll be putting up to worship. Now, there's a fine line there, because most people who create things aren't going around going, I'm creating an idol, okay? That's not what most people do. People didn't, you know, nobody created, this is a very utilitarian uh, object right here, okay? And nobody created this going, man, I really hope that someday somebody worships this podium. I really hope that this becomes, you know, the expression of God for a group of people, you know, at some point in time. But the, the fact is, is that we're, whether, we, whether, we are, whether we're creating from a utilitarian standpoint, or whether we're creating from a, an artistic standpoint, in other words, striving to create something of beauty, and those two things are not mutually exclusive. You can create utilitarian things and strive for them to be beautiful, okay? That, that's, those aren't not creating a false dichotomy or anything like that. But in the creation of it, what God is talking to the creators about in the second commandment is intentionality. What are your intentions in creating? Why are you creating this? Because you're going to create it to do, Now, now I will give you a binary you're going to create it to do one of two things. Either to bring glory to God or to bring glory to self or man. You're, you're, you, we, as those of us that are in this room that are believers, will be either trying to create expressions of our own artistic creativity or competence or whatever it is, whether it's aesthetic or utilitarian, whatever direction we're going with it, we will either be trying to utilize our creativity for the glory of God or express our creativity for the glory of self. And the, the point of that, you, you know, the, um, if you ever remember your old English classes in high school, they talk about, you know, the direct object in a sentence is really important because it receives the action of the verb. You know, it's that creative process. It's like that with the creative process. Is the creative process, is the direct object, not the thing that's being created, but is it self or is it God? And that's what Exodus 24 is trying to clarify for us, is that the, the, as we create, it is not to worship, but as an act of worship. And that's where we get down to Exodus 31, is where, where we get that wonderful list. And it's this long list of all these things and these, the Hebrew names that are hardened. But I love that phrase that's right there in the middle. I remember the first time that we taught about this, uh, that I was teaching about this, that when Angie and I have been married, and, you know, I've got a stepson. When, and just, I mean, and, and, a, and a stepdaughter too, but, you know, Virginia's kind of found her creativity. She loves painting. If any of you follow me on Facebook, she's opened her own little Etsy shop, Jenny's Handmade Goods. So uh, she doesn't have social media, so you'll be seeing that a number of times. Go buy, or buy her paintings. <laughs> okay, please, buy her paintings, you know. Uh, she's found, you know, she's found that expressive bent. You know, Wynne hasn't quite found that expressive bent yet, and he's going to find it someday. But there's that, there's that part in Exodus 31 where it says, I have given to all men skill to labor and, and to craft. Like, a, all men, all of us have the ability to be creative in some capacity. And, and Angie said, you know, we came out and she was like, boy, that's going to start being my prayer for when, you know, discover what that thing is. When I was growing up, part of the way that uh, mom and dad formulated our education experience was they said, when you go to college, we're going to, as an adult, we're going to do kind of, I think it was four things, if I remember off the top of my head correctly. One, we're going to give you the best education that we can. Two, you're going to pay for half of it. Because when you went to college, wherever you go, that's fine, but you're going to pay for half of it. So that when you're sitting in that class and you're like, this is boring, you're going, this is my money, you know. Uh, three, we're going to, we want you to, to finish out with, we want you to finish college. I guess those are the four things for college, I guess kind of what it was. Three, we want you to graduate from college. And we want you to have a skill and an art a skill and an art. The art being that thing that you kind of feel like you're called to do, the thing that you're going to create and, and and keep that in mind. I'm gonna come, we're going to come back to that, okay? Um, and then the skill, a thing you can do. That's a that's a uh, you know, it's it's a uh, it's a practical application of labor, if you will. That at some point in time and and one that in many places the world will always need. And so mine when I finished was uh, teaching. I, you know, I started off with a double major. I was paying for half of it. So as all my friends were changing majors, I was like, heck no, I'm not paying another $7,000 a year. And they said, and by the way, to earn that money to help pay for your, uh, for your education, that half part of your education, you had, I had a soccer scholarship that covered. Covenant was $14,000 at the time. This was back in the 90s. <laughs> back in ninety ninety three to ninety seven, and so they they covered seven, and then i co- I covered the other seven. And three thousand of it was a soccer scholarship, and that was my job while I was at Covenant was playing soccer. By my sophomore year, I hated it. I was done with three seasons. I mean, it's college sports. you know, I mean, you know, that although I guess that even sounds like youth sports now, the way they do it, but it was three seasons. It was hard work. It was 6 a.m. weight rooms and all that kind of stuff. And by the end of my sophomore year, I was like, I want to quit. Like, I'm, I'm not going to go be a professional soccer player. And so I was like, I'm done. But it was my job. I got paid to do it. I couldn't quit because if I quit, I would have lost that $3,000 and had to go find it someplace else or leave Covenant. And in the summers, they said, we're going to give you a skill. So they found me a job with a construction company. And I worked for a commercial construction company for five summers, the summer before I left college to the summer after I left college. And, and I started off as a laborer, then was a carpenter, then was an, or then was an assistant carpenter, then was an assistant labor foreman. I ended up as the assistant superintendent of a uh, $42 million job site uh, in North Charlotte one summer. And they actually offered me a job to not go back to college my senior year and stay and finish. Now, thank the Lord, I realized that that was a terrible decision for someone like me because I was getting by by the skin of my teeth because I can't do math. That's not good in the construction industry if you can't do math. But I did learn. I learned how to work hard. I did learn how to be a carpenter. And 10 years later, when I graduated from graduate school and I'd been through a rough relation, I needed a break. And I was actually able to step out of teaching and go back. And I worked for an exteriors company for a year, um, just to get my head clear. Your head clears up when you're on a rickety ladder 30 feet off the ground without any ropes attached because you work for a shoddy company, you know? That wasn't the good skill I learned. But that was the point is you learn a skill and a talent, a skill and an art. And as you learn those things, what you learn is that being creative is not just producing painting or producing this thing. Being creative, this is why we look at this. these passages, is because what being creative means, it means to bring order to chaos. And that's what we said is one of the components of culture. Culture is bringing order. Cult, that foundational word of culture, not meaning it like a religious or a crazy cult of people that are, not cultic, okay? but the original meaning of the word just means order and culture is bringing order. We will do that as Christians creatively. And creatively meaning we will create order out of chaos. So that's, our, that's part of our call. And when we create that order, we don't create the order for the worship of self, but for the worship of God. Now, That's where the cultic part comes in. What cult leaders do is they create order for the worship of themselves. That's why they become cult leaders. Because people worship them for the order that they have imposed upon the environment. The culture they have created. So this is is why this is so important. Not just for the artist, but for the Christian, period. Period. And then we looked at the horizontal axis, which is what Paul gives us. Both of these are examples from Paul. And the Acts 17 one, as we remember, is Mars, it's Paul at Mars Hill, where he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious. You can see what culture, you can see what belief systems underlie cultures because life is one. The values of a culture do, in fact, reflect the prioritized beliefs of a culture. So you can examine and learn the prioritized belief system of a group of people by examining the culture and the values. And that's what T.S. Eliot said way back at the beginning of the course when we looked at that first T.S. Eliot quote, when what he said is, culture is what is worth studying when a People group is gone, and you're sort of looking backwards at it. It's what it's the remnants of what's in that. What we see that's left behind, because it's the those are the valuable things. Those are the artifacts that cultures leave behind. Okay, so that gives us this, and then Colossians two verses six through seven is where we finished up last week, and that is that uh, Colossians two six through seven says. Um, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted in Christ." That's, this, that's the horizontal axis, that we people can tell what we believe by the cultures we create, and that if we are to engage culture as Christians, we're, we're getting into today all the different ways that we, we're getting into. Machen and Lewis and Niebuhr and Tim Keller we will look at what they say about engaging cultures today, but you got you. This is what you have to remember. You can't be a Nieberite on engaging culture. You can't be a Kellerite on engaging culture. You can't be a Lewisite on engaging culture. You have to be a Christian on engaging culture. You have to start here, rooted in Christ. One of my students at the uh, one of the students at Bibb County. Uh, BTS's extension at Bibb County Correctional Institute, one of the students there, I'm teaching uh, uh, Theology of Teaching with them right now. And one of the things I'm telling them is if you stand up and talk for more than 20 minutes, you're doing a bad job. So I apologize. Uh, uh, It's hard when you have this much information that you have to get out. But uh, one of the students said, you know, we were talking about the eminence versus the transcendence of, of Christ as a foundational idea about teaching. And eminence meaning that, which we believe God is both eminent and transcendent, but prioritizing eminence that God is within and that truth arises from within. So in other words, like you find God by exploring self kind of idea versus transcendence, which is God is without. And we judge and evaluate what we find within based on what God has revealed without, which would be his special revelation. So that he was, one of the students made a great point. uh, Eunice, he goes, he goes, I get this, but this all truth is God's truth. I mean, does that mean that, like, uh, you can just, Egyptian mythology, if it has a little bit of truth and it's God's truth? And, and he was struggling with how does that, like, play out? And we worked our way logically through to the statement which says, like, all truth that we find in general revelation we must view through the lens of, what? You guys know the answers. Of what? Special, Special revelation. Exactly. So the truth we find... We will find gigantic amounts of truth in general revelation. God has revealed himself in the creation and the world around us and relationships and the activities of people. But those things are viewed through the lens of special revelation. And so what we have to remember as believers is that it's really easy for us because we think that we are um, we think we're really good at staying biblically grounded. we're we're, oftentimes we're really not, okay? Because we get, even in the Christian community, we get very easily swayed by, 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 eloquent and and people that are trying to do the right thing. This isn't anything against them. They're not doing it for the worship of themselves. This is where the second commandment can become so insidious in a lot of different ways. I mean like the application of it can become insidious. It's not that like a Tim Keller is out there going, I'm going to write books so people will worship me. Like we know Tim Keller. Tim Keller has spoken at Briarwood. Tim Keller and Harry Reader are great friends. Like they he is a he is he is passionately sharing the gospel with people. As a matter of fact, just did it in an amazing way. If you get a chance to go watch it, watch Tim Keller engage culture by doing it at the... He was asked to address the British Parliament this past week and did an amazing job with bringing Christian truth to it. Obviously, his talk at Princeton with the Kuiper Lecture Series last, last fall was huge, and there were protests about him, and he did such an amazing job of winsomely doing that. And because God's gifted him, what do other Christians sometimes tend towards doing? Well, I don't know. What is what yeah, what I don't know, what does Tim Keller say about that? I don't know. What does C.S. Lewis say about that? I love C.S. You guys know I love C.S. Lewis. We wouldn't let C.S. Lewis within a, within a barn mile of the pulpit of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. You probably agree with, I mean, as a reformed believer. You probably agree with less than 60% of C.S. Lewis's theology, okay? That's okay. But what we do is we take those eloquent, thoughtful men and women, and we, we stick them up on those pedestals, you know what I mean? And they become like mini-gods, like, which a mini-god is just a major god that gets in the way of the real god. I mean, we know that. And so the encouragement in, in Colossians 2 is to engage all of these philosophies. Engage these debates rooted in Christ. Not another thinker. And then as we engage all those thinkers, we do so through the lens of special revelation. Through God's word. We stay focused on bringing to bear, like the Bereans, testing everything against the scriptures. Okay? So what does that look like to stay rooted in Christ. Well, let's run through what that looks like really quickly. Okay? And then, and then we're, we're, we're moving on. So Colossians actually gives us the prayers. That sounds great, Ike. Rooted in Christ. I'll stay rooted in Christ. What does that mean? What does it look like? Well, thankfully, Colossians gives us a beautiful picture. And if you read a few weeks ago, Colossians 1 through 3, you can just see this train and flow of Paul's thought. Constantly broken in. He is so amazed by the preeminence of Christ and by the person of Christ, that in this first three chapters, there's actually three separate hymns that Paul breaks into during this this dialogue that he gives about why uh, Christ, the Son of God, is so important for how we understand the way we engage the world and society and environment around us. And so here's what he does. In Colossians 2, Colossians 1, he gives us sort of the, the background and he gives us the first hymn, which is that verse 15 on uh, that, in, in, which says, um, you know, it, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation for by him, all things were created. So his, that's the foundation stone. He just goes through why everything stems out of Christ. God, through Christ, through the word, created everything. That's what gives the Christian the call to be involved in God's creation. So it's through Christ. Not only that, but the one who was the tool or the mechanism of creation, Christ, now lives within you by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, there's nothing to fear in the world outside around you. The tool of God's creation lives within you, which is amazing. So as he does that, he gets to verse 2, and he says at the very beginning, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you in verse one of chapter two. He's telling those in, in, in Laodicea and Colossae, for you and those at Laodicea, I'm struggling for you. I love you so much that I want to see, and I have not seen all of you face to face, but why am I struggling? So two through four, why is Paul writing this? So if you've got your copies of God's word, we're gonna look at these sections real quick, okay? Why is he writing it? His struggle is that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. So what is that? Why is he writing? He wants them to reach what? What does he want to see happen with them? Why is he writing this in Colossians 2, 2 through 4? He wants one, First, the very first thing he says there in chapter two or verse two is that he wants their hearts. What? This is encouragement. Okay. It's also going to be challenging because you're going to have to think, but I'm encouraging you. I want you to be encouraged. And how are you encouraged? What's, what comes next? By, you're encouraged in love by be, being, is the, is the transition verb right there, by being what? Knit together. knit together in love. I want to see you churches and those within the churches, I want to see you knit together in love. If you've been to the service this morning, echoing what Peter says, love part of our responsibilities in our culture and environment around us. Love the brotherhood, and brotherhood is a generic term there. It just means the group, the people, the ones called together. It means Christians is what it means there, what Peter's referring to, right? So I want you to be uh, encouraged, and I want you to be one one of your encouragements is that I want you to be knit together in love. To be knit together, though, means that, that not just that you're like passing each other, oh, hey, I know you. Oh, I know you. But it means an interwoven. In, does anyone knit in here? No, we got no knitters. <laughs> Goodness gracious. I wish Virginia was here. Virginia's a knitter. My stepdaughter's a knitter. When you knit together, what are you doing? What are you, I mean, just even think about have you seen a grandma knit? <laughs> what does it look like? You got those little knitting tools, and they're doing what? <coughs> they're interlocking. The yarn gets interwoven with one to another. Now there's one thread you could get down here and pull and make the whole thing go to pieces if you're not careful. But when you're not pulling that thread, when you're pulling the whole thing, it may stretch, it may bend, but it stays together. And when it comes back together, many times when you stretch out something that's been knitted, unlike like a cotton t-shirt, which is which you can stretch to fit over when you're you know, a little larger than when you got the cotton t shirt to begin with, that, that stays kind of stretched out. Something that's knitted will, it'll suck back together. You know, you ever seen that? As a, you know, you kind of push that sweater part and it sucks back and actually comes back together almost like a little bit tighter. In other words, when you push it, it'll pull back even tighter. Paul wants these people uh, to be knit together with encouragement by being together in love with one another. And if they are, if you're encouraged and you're knit together, then you have the opportunity, this is the infinitive verb, that's a two plus a verb, to what? What's next in verse verse two? To reach all the riches of assurance. Ladies and gentlemen, assurance is awesome, isn't it? Isn't that one of the biggest things that we struggle with in our lives, period? Just assurance of anything, assurance of our I mean, not, we're not just talking about assurance of our salvation, we're talking about assurance of the, our loved ones, their love for us assure. I mean, assurance of uh, that. My you know, my I'm not going to get a note from my bank that says, you know, you owe us a thousand dollars for some reason that something slipped by. I mean, we just want assurances, just want to feel because assurance brings security. Assurance makes you feel secure. And there is nothing like that feeling of absolute security. Is there? And as adults, like you almost never feel it, do you? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we almost always are thinking like, when's the next shoe going to drop? What's the next thing that's going to happen? And that longing to be like that, the child that just feels absolutely secure in the protection, the safety and the love of a family. We don't get it. But Paul is saying you can reach full assurance. You can reach full assurance. And that assurance comes with understanding, the knowledge uh, the uh, assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Well, what's the mystery? What's the mystery, Paul? How do I get scooby-dooed my way through this thing? Well, the mystery is Christ. The mystery is how a sinful person can be reconciled with a holy God. And the mystery is Christ. And guess what? When you have him, in him, all of the, and I love that he uses this word because in the Greek it really is a key word, all of the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. Literally it means treasure. Not just wealth of mystery and knowledge, it means the treasure of mystery and knowledge. That thing which we search for, we long for, we want to have. The mystery and knowledge is hidden in Christ. In other words, he's creating a picture here for us, ladies and gentlemen, that we get to this where he says, he says rooted, what does rooted in Christ look like? Rooted in Christ means that you will never, ever, ever find the full expression of wisdom and knowledge anywhere. Other than in Christ, you could look outside Christ for people to help explain it or people to exposit it and preachers are called to do this. And we have Christian writers that do this and other people that do this. But at the end of the day, the full expression of it is in Christ rooted in Christ means you are passionately, constantly seeking the treasure in him. And it also means by, by negation that you will never fully find it in others. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? I mean, like we are totally leave that behind. When we, when we enter our colleges and our universities and our seminaries and a lot of places, we get so wrapped into the other that we forget that it is in Christ that is those full expressions. All right. So he gives us that because he wants us. That's what he tells us stay rooted in Christ. And then how can you avoid f- being unrooted? How can you avoid being gone out of Christ? And he says in verse four, but and he, well, he says in verse four at the end, he says, I say this so that no one will delude you with plausible arguments for though are, uh, uh, because, because the plausible arguments, I mean, you can find this stuff apart from Christ and you can't. So, so how do you get it? How do you avoid doing that? Verse 6 and 7. Therefore, it's what we read. As you received Christ, walk in Him. That's the key. You stay rooted by walking. That's one of those great paradoxes of Scripture, right? Walk in Christ while rooted in Him. Uh, You know, I I, I honestly believe that the best visual example of this is is from Tolkien. Like, is from the Lord of the Rings. If you saw the movies, if you read the books. I love that these ints. The trees that can just up their roots and walk to do battle and do war and, you know, and everything else. But this idea that you have a root structure that's movable, you know, sort of thing. But it's movable only because it's rooted in Christ. And the more you're rooted, the better your walk is. The more your walk is in him, the more it is a straight walk and not a zigzag walk that's going around. So you're rooted in him. You're built up in him. You're established in the faith. And this, by the way, abounds in thanksgiving. You can avoid being deceived by plausible arguments by being rooted in Christ. And then in verse 8 and 9, he says, but what you have to be on your guard for is that people want to take you captive. See, see Satan's not happy with that. And he wants to take you captive. He wants to grab you and pull you away from. Them. He wants to uproot you and transplant you from the kingdom of light to the kingdom of darkness. And how does he do it? He does it through, by philosophy and empty deceit. Now that word philosophy, there are a billion people that have said, you know, see, you can't study philosophy. That's not what that word means right there. It doesn't mean like, I mean, but they would have been just as familiar with Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and everybody else. These writers, the, the New Testament writers would have been very familiar with that. But the word that it would, what the way that we would uh, uh, the word that would really fit there, but we really don't use anymore except for when we're thinking about classical philosophy, really the word there would be sophistry. All right. That would be a really good translation for that word sophistry, which means does anybody remember what sophistry means from that? The sophists were Socrates like number one enemy. The sophists, if there is an equivalent of the sophists, In the New Testament, they would be the scribes. When the Gospels, when it talks about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, the the Pharisees were the rule keepers. The Sadducees were like the humanists of the day. They were so Sadducee because they did not believe in the resurrection, right? The scribes would be like the sophists. They wanted to get people entangled in logical arguments. And Luke tells us that in that last week of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, as he was going to the cross, that the scribes were sending spies trying to get Jesus entangled in logical arguments. Those were the sophists. And that's who that they were, they were Socrates in. So it's not saying like the study of the history of ideas is evil, or that's but Satan can use that, but he turns it into this study of What Satan turns that into is this study of uh, uh, this passionate desire to pursue. I pursue ideas at the expense of everything else. like you're adding an idea to your bag. Oh, I've got that one. Oh, I've got that one. Oh, I've got that one. Because your bag becomes that bag of ideas becomes your treasure. And that's a treasure that's not found in Christ. So that's how Satan is trying to dissuade you. And if he does that, then if you jump to chapter three, then this is, this is how you you continue to combat that. If then you have been raised in Christ, do what? Now, not only are we rooted, are we walking in? Seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. Christ tells us what we're supposed to stay focused on. And it's not this world. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have implications for this world. What we do does have implications for this world. But we seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on this earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also appear with him in glory. And then we just all the way down to 17, he gives us a final sort of conclusion on that in verse 17. After going through a lot of the physical, a lot of the commands and the implications of that, goes through a final thing to 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. So as you go through all these things, as you're doing them, keep your mind on things above. Rooted in Christ, in whom is found all the treasures of wisdom. People will want to deceive you with the collection of ideas. And you stay away from that. Not that you don't study ideas, but you stay away from seeking your treasure in those ideas. You see where this is all tied together. Why you can't just pluck these verses out. Why they're dependent upon one another. And you do that and you avoid that. By seeking that which is above, not that is with uh, that which is below, because your life is hidden with Christ who is above, not here on this earth. And as you're doing that, whatever you do as you go forward in word or deed, whatever you say or whatever you do, you do it uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus. That doesn't mean that you do whatever you want and you just add Jesus' name to the end. It means you think about everything you do as being done unto Jesus. And then as you do it, when you name Jesus, you got to ask yourself the question, would Jesus be glorified and honored? Which takes us right back to Exodus 31. Is he glorified in what I'm creating? Is he glorified in what I am doing? Is he glorified in what I am saying? That's how we stay rooted in him. And as we do it, we do all of it with thanksgiving. That's the rooted in Christ paradigm. This is a paradigm. That's where we had to work through this. So as we get to the next step, which we're not going to go into any of it right now. I know where time's done, but Paul takes time. I'm sorry. He's logical and he, we got to work through him. As we get to this next step, as we, as we look at approaching culture as Christians, recognizing that we do so rooted in Christ. So rooted in Christ becomes our sort of catchphrase for that paradigm, okay? That paradigm that we looked at, the Exodus, Exodus, Acts, and Colossians paradigm is rooted in Christ for him, seeking that which is above, not for our own worship, but for the worship of God, knowing that people can tell what we believe by what we do and prioritize. As we're creating both artistically and culturally around us, how do we then engage culture? Well, number one, we know that we, this is a fulfillment of the Great Commission. It's a covenantal extension. As part of the Great Commission, we've got three things we're doing while we're out there doing life. Number one is the Great Commission. As you are going, teach, baptize, disciple, do those things. While you're going, express the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. As you are going, bring fulfillment. Bring order to the world around you. Called as a human created in God's image to cultivate the world, to have dominion over it, but to do so positively as a benevolent ruler over culture around you. That's the covenantal fulfillment of the Great Commission. And then we're going to see that we do it consecration with joy, with joy. And then we will be building roads, as Lewis says, to Jerusalem. And all of these, we remain rooted in Christ.